Hi everyone and welcome to the very first episode of season two of the Homecoming Podcast. Whether you are a longtime listener or just tuning in for the very first time, welcome. Homecoming is a podcast that provides the space for Asians, Asian Americans, and mixed heritage Asians of all backgrounds to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. Everything from intergenerational trauma to international politics, to interracial solidarity. I'm your host, Angel Rena. I'm an Asian American college student originally from Missouri, and I created Homecoming back in May for people to share their stories and for everyone to just listen and learn. And I am so, so, so excited to be bringing this entirely new second season of 13 episodes to you all. So this first episode is actually kicking off a two-part series on affirmative action, since it's a very relevant topic, and actually the school I go to right now, Yale, is in the midst of an affirmative action lawsuit. So today, Professor Janelle Wong from the University of Maryland is here on the podcast to answer some questions about the origins of affirmative action in the U.S., to discuss the details of the Harvard case and the Yale DOJ lawsuit and the role of Asian Americans in all of this, and finally to dispel some misconceptions about affirmative action and race in college admissions. And next week, the heads of the Black Student Alliance and the Asian American Student Alliance at Yale will be joining me to have a bit of a debrief and just share their perspectives on affirmative action and other relevant issues. So make sure you have subscribed to Homecoming on whatever platform you're using to listen and make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Homecoming Pod so you're ready for the second part and for future episodes. But Professor Wong, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today as my very first guest of the season. I hope you had a very restful holidays and hopefully got to spend some time with family and friends. Um, Again, for those of you who haven't heard of her, Professor Wong is a professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland, and she's an expert in political attitudes and behavior and how they relate to race, ethnicity, and religion. She has published numerous papers and books that focus on these topics and others, including Asian American political participation and immigration. So honestly, she is very much an established and knowledgeable person when it comes to the topics we're covering in this episode because affirmative action is right in her wheelhouse. So you know this episode will be super informative and I hope you're able to learn something today. But Professor Wong, do you also want to introduce yourself in your own words? Because I definitely missed a lot in that short introduction and don't feel like it really did you justice. So feel free to mention your name, pronouns, where you work, your fields of expertise slash focus of your research, your ethnic background, and really anything else you want to share with the listeners. Super. Well, thank you for having me here, Angelina. It's really great to be here. Um, Again, my name is Janelle Wong, and I'm a professor at the University of Maryland. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I study Asian American politics, so I'll be teaching a class on Asian American politics this coming semester, and also a class on race relations. I'm Chinese American, sixth generation in the U.S., and um, I started to teach Asian American studies as soon as I graduated from graduate school. I got a PhD in political science, and um, I have always been in both ethnic studies and political science. And uh, I am 
really interested in politics. And so that's why I became a political scientist. And I'm very interested in race and politics in particular. So that's why I have started to focus on affirmative action, mainly because I see the issue really becoming, I think, very controversial in our communities. And uh, it really gives me pause to think about what this debate over affirmative action could do for the future of race relations in the U.S. I see so many Asian Americans attacking affirmative action. Um, it's kind of becoming the face of the opposition to affirmative action at places like Harvard and at Yale that I really uh, am concerned in some ways about what this means for the future of the Rainbow Coalition and, um, you know, racial justice more broadly in the U.S. Amazing. Thank you so much, Professor. And um, thank you again so much for lending your time to be on the podcast and for being uh, flexible with scheduling. Um, so I know you have published numerous papers and books like Democracy's Promise, Asian American Political Participation, and Immigrants, Evangelicals, and Politics in an Era of Demographic Change. And I definitely encourage all the listeners to go and check those out. And you were also the co-principal investigator in this super critical national Asian American survey back in 2016 on Asian American views on different public policy issues and their political participation. And I will put the link to that survey in the episode description. But uh, just to allow you to speak more about your background and to also provide some context for the rest of the episode, how did your interest in studying and teaching Asian American studies, political participation, immigration, and affirmative action, um, among other areas, begin? And uh, why did you decide to focus on these specific issues and intersections? Yeah, I mean, I was also a college student like you at one point, and I was at UCLA, and uh, I was working on a political campaign, and I really caught the bug in terms of uh, American politics. I, I was really interested in maybe working on a campaign um, as a career or um, running for office, but then I realized that Asian Americans weren't uh, represented in politics very uh, frequently. There weren't a lot of um, voters who were Asian American. And so I really got interested in thinking about political representation and race. And at the same time, I also had a mentor um, who studied race and uh, also racial inequality. And his name was Melvin Oliver. He had a huge effect on me. And so I sort of shifted from studying or from working on campaigns to thinking about doing more research and teaching in this area. And I always was very interested in Asian American identity, uh, the experiences of Asian Americans in the U.S., um, and the kind of insights we could have if we started to look at Asian Americans as a window into race relations in the U.S., uh, more broadly because of the kinds of deep experiences, deep, ex deep discrimination we've felt, but also the kind of relative advantages that Asian Americans have in the U.S. And so how do we make sense of those things simultaneously? How, what does that mean for our relationship with dominant groups and with groups that have faced oppression 
and how are we making our way in American politics more generally. And so I also started to study Asian American public opinion, do a lot of surveys on Asian Americans and our political attitudes. And, you know, there are always some surprising kinds of things that we find Asian Americans are, you know, most distinct from the rest of the U.S. population on issues that we don't think about as Asian American issues, the environment, gun control, healthcare. And then you can see sometimes this divergence between Asian American public opinion broadly and the activism we see more uh, in the media. And so the reason I came to this affirmative action topic is because for 20 years, I've been studying Asian American public opinion. I see that Asian Americans support affirmative action as a whole. And yet the main story in the media is that Asian Americans oppose affirmative action. And so I wanted to understand how these voices who oppose affirmative action are starting to represent the broader community who actually, if we survey Asian Americans, they support uh, and have consistently supported affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, a lot of what you just touched on about affirmative action will also get into uh, later into the episode. Um, and I just wanted to say that I'm really glad that we're doing this episode on affirmative action first in the season because I've wanted to do it for a few months now uh, because of the ongoing Harvard case and the Yale DOJ lawsuit. And also uh, many high school seniors around the world are applying to colleges right now. So affirmative action and college admissions are on many people's uh, many people's minds right now. Um, and before we begin this part, uh, I also want to say to the listeners that I will put links to all of the resources and articles I've used to learn more about affirmative action and also those that Professor Wong suggests in a Google document and put it into the homecoming link tree and also this episode description so you can consult them and use them as a starting place for your own research. Um, but affirmative action, first, what exactly is it? Uh, I'll let Professor Wong speak more in depth about what affirmative action is and, and its origins and let her validate or counter what I'm about to say. But the Cornell Legal Information Institute defines affirmative action as a set of procedures designed to eliminate unlawful discrimination among applicants to educational programs or professional employment, remedy the results of such prior discrimination, and prevent such discrimination in the future. And they also note that in modern American jurisprudence, it typically imposes remedies against discrimination on the basis of race, religion, color, and national origin. And just to give a brief summary of the origins of affirmative action, uh, while the concept has existed in the U.S. since the 19th century, the term affirmative action was first used in Executive Order 10925, issued by President John F. Kennedy on March 6, 1961. And this essentially mandated that government contractors, quote, take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin, unquote. And this was set out during the civil rights era, right? So the intent here was to affirm the government's 
commitment to equal opportunity and to ensure that hiring and employment practices were free of bias. Then on July 2nd, 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, which prohibited discrimination based on race, color, religion, or national origin. And then on September 24th, 1965, President Johnson issued Executive Order 11246, which required government contractors to take affirmative action in hiring and employment and to document these efforts. Um, President Johnson also amended the order to include sex in the list of attributes. And then afterwards, we have a series of orders and laws, such as President Nixon's 1969 Philadelphia order that attempted to guarantee fair hiring practices in construction jobs, and California's Proposition 209, which banned all forms of affirmative action in California. And then we also have court cases later on, like Regents of the University of California versus Bakke. Uh, it's a very, you know, well-known affirmative action case, which ruled that schools could not use racial quotas, but affirmative action was allowed if it passed strict scrutiny. And we'll get into this case and other court cases soon, uh, but there really is so much history and controversy and, and legal precedent reversal and change when it comes to affirmative action. So. Uh, Professor Wong, I really hope that you will be able to help illuminate some of these aspects for us. Um, but what would you say affirmative action is in your own words? And are, are, are there specific events or court cases in the history of affirmative action that you'd also like to highlight? Yeah, so I think, you know, you have a lot of the history that was that was right. And um, as you can see, one of the things that I think your brief summary emphasizes is that affirmative action is not a single law or policy. It's a set of procedures. It's a set of rules and it can, there are different ways to implement it. And it covers a lot. It covers everything from government contracts to hiring, to promotions, to uh, what is really gotten the most controversial in this country, which is, um, college admissions, right? It's practiced in the public sphere. It's practiced in the private sphere. And the key, uh, the key kind of legal, uh, I think, issue that I think people keep forgetting about but need to be reminded of when talking about affirmative action is really the 14th Amendment, which is a constitutional amendment, equal protection. So the 14th Amendment, you know, passed and was supposed to ensure equality. But we know that it passed and 100 years later, there was still discrimination. And for many of those years, there was legal discrimination, despite the fact that the 14th Amendment had been passed and mandated equality, there was still legal residential segregation, there was still discrimination in hiring and in employment, and there was still unequal access to schools and unequal education, right? And so the if you think about it, if you think about affirmative action in relation to the 14th Amendment, then you can see that affirmative action is really a set of policies that are designed 
to address the fact that the 14th Amendment couldn't guarantee equal protection and equality, right? In fact, because the the existence of the 14th Amendment did not lead to equality, especially between blacks and whites, then lawmakers started to say, well, we can't just we can't just ban discrimination because that's really what the 14th Amendment tries to do, ban legal discrimination, right? But just by banning discrimination, there were still 100 years of discrimination after the 14th Amendment passed. And so the key here is really the word that you keep saying, affirmative, right? It's you can't just ban discrimination. You have to affirmatively try to ensure equality of opportunity. And that that's a different way to think about how to address discrimination because simply banning discrimination did not work. And so the reason that Kennedy and Nixon and others emphasized affirmative policies is because they were like, okay, it's not working. We need to do something that is more affirmative in its implementation. And so we have affirmative action, right? Which considers racial identity as part of, and is really, is really considering experiences with discrimination. So I hear a lot of people say affirmative action is an unfair preference. But if you think about it in relation to the 14th Amendment and the fact that the 14th Amendment didn't address equality, didn't lead to equality, then you can see it's not an unfair preference. It's a tool to ensure that ongoing discrimination is mitigated to some extent. So it's actually a policy to designed to address inequality. It's not a preference, it's a tool to ensure that unfair preferences for the most advantaged people do not prevail again and again and again, which is what was happening even though discrimination was banned. So so would you say that there is legal and constitutional legitimacy to affirmative action in the US? Yes, I would. I think this is what is always at stake in these court cases. But if you look at the Harvard case, if you look at um, the Supreme Court's recent decision, most recent decisions, basically the decision has been over and over again that the Supreme Court has consistently held that race is an important and permissible consideration among many factors within, let's say, a holistic admissions practice. So it can never be the only consideration. It can never be the primary consideration, but it is justified if it is narrowly tailored, right, by, it is, it is constitutionally justified by two things, by a college's or a any kind of institution's mission to achieve diversity and by it's also justified by current discrimination so i think that the it has been at least for the last 40 years the supreme court has ruled that it is legal and that it is constitutionally legitimate that's what's 
question going forward because the court is changing. Right. And we'll definitely get into that, you know, the the conservative Supreme Court uh, later on in the episode. But just to stick with some basic questions first. So 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 why exactly is affirmative action important? Um, Because something that I thought about a lot in high school when I first you know, learned about what affirmative action was and what it meant. Um, I used to think like, oh, if we want to rectify systemic inequalities, why aren't we directly addressing socioeconomic status instead of race? Um, Because there are a lot of uh, people of color out there who are very wealthy and and privileged um, in terms of their socioeconomic status. But then we may have people who are from low-income backgrounds who aren't people of color. And I didn't think, like, the people of color, the wealthy people of color should get in just because of their race. Like, we have to consider other aspects of their privilege and disadvantages as well, you know, especially considering that there are a ton of admitted students every year who are donors and wealthy wealthy legacies. Which is Um, always done. So in any time that... You know, race is never the soul, and it's no one ever gets in just because of their race. That's definitely not the case. But that's a good question. I think for many people, it is highly attractive to abandon thinking about race and think about socioeconomic status instead because it's less controversial, right? It's a lot less likely to lead to the kinds of um, feelings that there's an unfair preference because of the way that affirmative action is framed. But I think in some ways we have to go back to basically social science. So there there are reasons and research that shows that just thinking about socioeconomic status and just considering socioeconomic status does not lead to the levels of diversity that we would want to see in colleges and universities, because otherwise colleges and universities would do that right? But they don't. Why? Because race-neutral policies don't ensure that these institutions meet their goals. So I just saw recently this study by Sean Reardon and colleagues that shows that an admission scheme that gives significant weight to both race and class results in more class diversity, more class diversity than one that relies on class alone. Okay, that meaning that you'll get more low-income students. And simulated results from this study show that a race-conscious admission policy will result in twice as many students from the lowest income strata enrolling in an institution than one based on economic class alone. So why is that? Thinking about race and class together is better, they found, than using either in isolation. And at first this seems kind of surprising, like, okay, why wouldn't just think about class alone? Why would not, why would just considering class alone not lead to more class, more low income students coming in, right? But it's really because of the way people, it's like lived experience. Students cannot be reduced to just race or class. So considering both in relation to each other, 
actually more accurately resembles the experience of students and better informs their likely enrollment decisions. So this is something that, you know, I think if, if it worked, I think there would be a lot of support for admissions policies that considered class alone, because it would be a lot easier for us politically, right? But the kinds of policies, so yeah, the people suing Harvard are saying, why don't you just rely on class? When they model that out, there's a huge drop in the proportion of Black students, in the numbers of Black students. And so it doesn't work very well. That's the bottom line. Gosh, yeah. And I, and I know, like, in that sort of thinking, like, there are a ton of myths and misconceptions out there when it comes to affirmative action. Um, and we'll get to that soon. Uh, but do you feel like affirmative action reinforces negative stereotypes about particular races? And do you feel like that the these policies are actually effective solutions to addressing systemic inequality when it comes to access to education? So they're one important kind of policy. We have very few policies that people endorse that address systemic inequality. So do they address all inequalities? No. But if you think about the if you think about college admissions as part of the long trajectory of a student's opportunities, it is one decisive point in which you can intervene with policy after, yes, many years of other kinds of inequalities in our K through 12 system. The thing that is really frustrating to me is that everyone I know who supports affirmative action, that is certainly not, if you look at the Lawyers Committee or the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, those groups who have been fighting for affirmative action are also fighting for K through 12 equity, right? They are doing both. It's not either or. So no one thinks it's the only thing that needs to happen. But it is one thing that if we have lots of research that shows if you don't have affirmative action, then you see fewer opportunities for Black and Latinx students. And so I think that's important. The other question that comes up again and again, and it's a good one, is does affirmative action stigmatize Black and Latinx students? And is that like a negative result of affirmative action? And I think it's pretty interesting when you look at who supports affirmative action. And you see Black and Latinx people are much more likely to support it than, let's say, whites and Asians, right? Even though Asian Americans are a majority, majority likely to support it. What, you, what that tells me is that, you know, if, if it was so stigmatizing, then why do Black and Latinx people who are taking these public opinion surveys support it? It's not that stigmatizing. The only people doing the stigmatizing are people in the majority who assume mistakenly that if you are admitted via an affirmative action program, you're less talented than other people. And that's not the case. So, you know, if you if you want to listen to communities, communities know that this is one kind of policy that addresses systemic discrimination. Yeah, that that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, and in regards to misconceptions about affirmative action and college admissions, like 
a lot of people don't really know what's going on behind the closed office doors and what admissions officers are are really taking into account, I guess. So I I'm about to ask you like a few questions about like different misconceptions about affirmative action. And you can just let me know like, oh, is this true? Kind of true, false, you know. Um, but like I guess first, like how do we actually know that the answers that you're about to give are actually 100% true if we don't always know what's happening in admissions offices? I mean, a lot of admissions offices actually publish the factors that they take into account. So the UCs or my, you know, flagship institutions, they actually do publish like exactly the things that they look for. There's like at my institution, there are like 30 different factors, right? Harvard has published it before, so they, they don't tell you exactly how it goes together, but you know they have like 200 factors that they look at, and I'm sure Yale does too, right? So there's definitely research also on admissions um, that people, I'm not in that field, but people who study higher ed do look at that, right? So, you know, I think Yes, it would be nice if every institution made completely transparent their admissions policies, but not every, they have no mandate to do that. The question I think is whether the person suing Harvard, Ed Blum and SFFA, should they be determining the admissions standards at Harvard? That makes no sense to me, right, at all. So I think, you know, Harvard, Yale, they are private institutions. They actually don't need to publish their admissions algorithms or formulas, right? That's not something that this country, we're a capitalist country, does not say that they have to do. And think about what, if they don't do it, then will fewer people apply there? I don't think it makes a difference. So there's not a lot of pressure on them to make it public. That doesn't mean there's not a ton of research on opportunities and who is advantaged by Harvard's and Yale's admissions policies. And we know exactly who's advantaged. Right. And also, I mean, that is completely one huge misconception that you addressed earlier on in the episode, right? Like, is that it's it's not like like people aren't getting in just because of their race, like race isn't the only factor that's being so considered in college admissions. Absolutely. So there's, when you think about a race, when you think about affirmative action, the Supreme Court, the Constitution prohibits some elements of um, race consciousness. So the way that race consciousness works has to be super careful and very, very narrow. So again, you can never, race can never be the primary factor. It can never be the only factor. It has to be one of a broad array of factors. And, you know, that's actually maybe more narrow than even, it, it doesn't work that well. So what we're talking about is a, a pretty narrow kind of policy that um, is very carefully implemented. Why? Because these are constitutional issues and these universities have you know, a lot of lawyers looking at their admissions policies to make sure that they are constitutional. 
Yeah. And let's get into some more misconceptions. So first, is there a quota system in place in college admissions when it comes to race? So this is one of the most um, broad misconceptions, especially within the Asian American community. So within the Asian American community, there's often like this fear tactic um, that is used that alleges that any kind of affirmative action will lead to hard quotas or a ceiling on Asian Americans. So, you know, I think people are like, oh, well, there's Asian Americans are actually only less than 7% of the population, right? And we know that they're just not a quota system because if there was any kind of quota system, I mean, Yale and Harvard do practice affirmative action and Asian Americans are not 7% of that, of those student bodies. They're more like 22 to 25%, right? So there's definitely not a quota system. And why is that? A quota system is illegal. It gets litigated immediately, including by Asian American civil rights activists, right? So as you mentioned earlier, Baki, the case at UC Davis, prohibited quotas. And so there have not been quotas since the 1980s. They have been unconstitutional. That was actually in the 70s, right? Not They have been unconstitutional. And so I think it's just a fear tactic that is used to mobilize people. But in fact, it's just not the case that quotas are instituted. And we can see that with our own eyes at places like Yale and Stanford and Harvard that practice affirmative action. And do universities have higher standards for students of different races when it comes to things like GPA or standardized test scores? For example, like do Asian Americans have to score higher on the SAT than other groups of people in order to be admitted? This is another misconception. So do Asian Americans exhibit higher SAT scores? Yes. Do they have to have those higher test scores to be admitted? No. This is, you know, kind of one of those things that became a myth in the Asian American community that there was a study by Tomas Espenshade and his colleague that is actually from the 1990s. That's where the data is from the 1990s. And admissions policies changed a lot between the time even that they collected the data and published their book, which is in the 2000s. And that study showed that Asian Americans had higher test scores than other groups when they got into these highly selective colleges. But those, that data did not include things like essays, letters of rec. It was just based on one, you know, a sur- on surveys, self-reported surveys of people's SAT scores and their socioeconomic status, but didn't have the whole application. And so you can never draw from that study the full picture or calculate the score exactly in terms of what people have to have. So the fact that they, they actually gave a number because it was modeled, but many factors were left out of that model. And so there's no specific score that Asian Americans have to achieve that, you know, other groups, like 130 points more than white students. That can, is not the correct interpretation of those data. And the author of that study has actually gone on record and said, 
this is this these data can't be used to show discrimination against Asian Americans. So let me tell you, let me just share two other kinds of points because I think it's an important one for our community. And the first is that in places where affirmative action has been banned, you still see a test score gap between Asian Americans and other groups, including whites. So in California, affirmative action has been banned for 25 years. But Asian Americans still score higher than other groups. If you look at their average test scores, they score higher. Okay, that is true, even though there's not affirmative action there. Why is there still a test score gap? Are Asian Americans being held to a higher standard? No. Asian Americans are actually advantaged in two ways that are reflecting reflected in their test scores. The first is that most the vast majority of Asian Americans, their parents are much more educated than the rest of the population. Why is that? Because after 1965, our immigration laws changed and Asian Americans were recruited to the U.S. such that they had to, to even be allowed to immigrate. They had to have high levels of education. And so our immigration policies selected Asian Americans they're actually hyper-selected, according to the sociological literature, where the Asian Americans that come to the U.S., they are more educated, not only than the average person in the U.S., but way more educated than the people in their country of origin. So this is true of Chinese, Indians, Koreans, Japanese. Like, if you look at Chinese, the level of education in the U.S. among Chinese immigrants is over 50% have a bachelor's degree. In China, 8% have a bachelor's degree. And so what we're looking at here is this kind of educational advantage that has been shaped by our immigration laws. That is why, so because of that educational level, Asian Americans also have higher levels of income than the average person in the U.S. How do we, what are the like primary correlates of high test scores. Education, parents' education, and parents' income. You would never use those two factors, parents' education or parents' income, as your admissions criteria. But in fact, that's what we do with these test scores. So that's why I'm a little bit nervous even saying like a test score gap means anything because the test scores are based on those two factors, right? Parents' education and parents' income. And I just don't think those are good admissions criteria. Right, absolutely. And this next one, this is something that a lot of the plaintiffs in the Harvard case, for example, are using. But are a disproportionate number of white students being rejected from colleges because of preferential treatment of people of color in admissions? So I guess I would answer that in two ways. One is that uh, a, a, an economist at Berkeley did a very large-scale study in California, pre- and post-affirmative action, and found that after California banned affirmative action, Black and Latinx students uh, were admitted at lower rates and also then suffered like in terms of their um, income past education. So like a whole generation was affected. Why do I bring that up? Because that study also tracked 
white and Asian students and found no benefit to banning affirmative action for white and Asian students. So that's kind of the flip side of what you're saying. Do Asian Americans and whites, or especially white students, benefit from a ban? Not that much. When there is affirmative action, and that's the only way to really look at it, because when when there is affirmative action, it's it's kind of a marginal number of um, seats, right? So what people find is that because because many white and Asian students probably wouldn't have gotten in anyways, then it doesn't really hurt them when a few Black and Latinx students are admitted. But when these bans go into place, then you can lose like 50% of Black and Latinx, because they're there in much smaller numbers, 50% of Black and Latinx students at that school. And that doesn't really lead to a very large increase for the other groups, which are there at much higher levels. So I guess that's one way of looking at it. The other thing that people bring up a lot, which I think is also important, is that when these bans go into place, then it is white students who tend to benefit the most. Asian American students, their numbers won't change that much. That's partly because they have a lot of people in those. They have a lot of a big proportion of people too. But I think in the Harvard case, it was pretty clear that whites would, would be the biggest beneficiary of any changes to admissions policies. Yeah, I think that study you brought up is super important to think about, right? Like the generational effects of policies like this or anti-affirmative action policies. Um, yeah, I'll send you that link because it's a super interesting study that actually tracked tens of thousands of students. You know, I think that our community is putting so much energy into, you know, creating these bans on affirmative action when it has almost no benefit to us and does affect generations of Black and Latinx students is really like kind of a horror. Yeah. And 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 so would would you say that there is bias in college admissions? against Asian Americans? Because we hear like how, you know, colleges like Harvard have ranked Asian Americans lower on like the personality scale or whatever. So would you say there's bias? So, you know, I think that the the personal rating used at Harvard is not a personality scale. The personal rating includes things like uh, letters of rec and lots of things that can't be quantified in the other um, five different, you know, there's four other different kinds of scores at Harvard. So I'll send you something that has a, it breaks it down a little bit more clearly because do Asian Americans face any kind of bias? Well, I have no doubt that Asian Americans face implicit bias in the U.S. We know that in the wake of COVID, you know, we know, um, that, White students are more likely to rate Asian American students as less warm than white students. But did they face bias in admissions? There's no evidence that that occurred at Harvard. And there's evidence. So, for instance, like, yes, Asian Americans were called quiet and serious, but so were Latinx students. 
So were black students. So were white students. It wasn't an Asian American thing. There was actually no, there was no evidence that Asian Americans faced any kind of discrimination, but the media picked up on that personal score. The difference in the personal scores was super low, right? It was very little difference. Asian Americans had an unexplained advantage. There was a little bit of a bump associated with being Asian American on the academic score, unexplained by the grade point and the standardized test scores. The Asian Americans aren't complaining about that, right? There's That is also a bias in the whole system, that Asian Americans actually got a little bit of an advantage on the academic rating and on the extracurricular rating. So I have no doubt that Asian Americans face implicit bias in the U.S. I'm Asian American. I have felt it. I have been told, go home, go back to where you come from, right? But we know, like, Asian Americans are also viewed by those same students who might call them less warm as highly competent. So think about this in the context of admissions. Those Asian Americans are the only group that actually faces maybe some stereotypes about being nerdy, but also some stereotypes about being highly competent. If you think about other groups, Black and Latinx students, those stereotypes are not accompanied by a positive stereotype that helps them get into college, right? So being considered highly competent is actually an advantage. And we see it in certain aspects like teachers. Teachers actually have higher expectations for Asian American students than Black and Latinx students. And that actually can lead to both higher GPAs, placement in APs, and to even higher test scores. And so Asian Americans are the only non-white group that's stereotyped in both a positive and negative direction. The remedy to like not consider race at all does nothing to address implicit bias against any of these groups, including Asian Americans. Instead, it actually introduces more reliance on things like standardized tests and extracurriculars, which are both highly correlated with parental income and education. So it actually introduces more class bias into the system. Yeah, and I really like that point that you made earlier about like what the media decides to pick up when it comes to these different cases. Like the whole personal rating was was like something that was really focused on and really blew up. So like a lot of people, like what people are consuming in the media, like depends on what they decide to report on, right? And like what is focused on. I mean, of course it resonated. If if you see that we are being discriminated against based on personality, that's pretty different than we had a lower score on the personal rating. They, the reason that SFFA and Edward Blum, the people suing Harvard, haven't won. I mean, that case was actually the, the idea that Asian Americans were facing discrimination based on the personal rating or in other ways has literally been adjudicated in two levels of the court system so far. And those courts have found no evidence that Asian Americans face discrimination. That should actually put Asian Americans' minds at ease, right? Asian Americans would think, okay, thank God they found we have not faced discrimination, but that didn't happen. Asian Americans still consider, still feel like 
oh, maybe we're facing bias. Why? Partly because of those media stories, but partly, I think, because we have internalized ourselves the model minority stereotype and think, well, it has to be discrimination, right? But if you, if you just take a step back and think, if talent is equally distributed among all racial groups, and if there's a lot of difference in the proportion at which those groups are showing up at places like Harvard or Yale, then what explains that? It has to be a problem with the system, right? Unless you think there's some kind of unequal distribution of talent among different groups, then I think what we see when we see that some groups are not accessing Harvard or Yale at the same levels as, let's say, whites and Asians, then you have to say there's some kind of problem with the system. And we have not, Asian Americans, I think, have not like thought about that very much. Instead, it resonates with us for good reason that Asian Americans face discrimination, right? Because we do face discrimination in other contexts like politics or in Hollywood, or even in getting promoted at in different corporations, et cetera. So I think that's why it, it really, there was an emotional kind of reaction to the idea that we would face discrimination, even though there's not really evidence of it in that context, because we feel it in other parts of our lives. That's where we should be fighting in those other areas, not in college admissions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And we've talked a lot about the Harvard case so far, but I want to sort of dig into the details a bit more after going through that list of misconceptions. Um, so yeah, let's talk about students for fair admissions uh, versus Harvard, which was a case filed back in 2014 by plaintiffs like the SFFA, which is an organization created by Edward Bloom, whom you mentioned before. And he is a white male, politically conservative legal strategist who has orchestrated numerous lawsuits challenging racial preference laws, including, uh, you know, Fisher v. Fisher versus the University of Texas and Shelby County versus Holder. He also leads the Project on Fair Representation, which is a group that supports litigation that challenges racial and ethnic classifications and preferences in court. And the plaintiffs in this Harvard case claim that the university violated the Civil Rights Act and discriminates against Asian Americans in its undergraduate admissions process. And they argue that Harvard uses a quota, uh, which we talked about before, is illegal to cap Asian American admittance. And ultimately, they argue that colleges should no longer consider race in their admissions. So I think first that it's really important to go into the history and motivations of Edward Bloom, because I feel like when we when people hear about affirmative action i don't think many of us necessarily hear about his role in all of this and he's also sort of conveniently hidden behind these broader organization names like the uh, project on fair representation and the sffa so professor wong who exactly is edward bloom 
how big of a role has he played in civil rights and affirmative action cases? And what exactly are his motivations and intentions? So Edward Blum is the head of an organization. He's president of Students for Fair Admissions. Students for Fair Admissions is Edward Blum and a woman named Abigail Fisher and her father. Abigail Fisher sued the University of Texas unsuccessfully for reverse discrimination. And Edward Blum had also brought that case. So Edward Blum is not a lawyer. He is a legal activist who has orchestrated many, many anti-civil rights cases. So in 2013, he successfully brought a case to the Supreme Court that ended one of the most important provisions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. In fact, he gutted the Voting Rights Act. In 2016, he took aim, and this was unsuccessful, but basically at immigrants' political representation. So he represented plaintiffs to, and this was again unsuccessful, to challenge the counting of undocumented immigrants in, um, in drawing political districts. So he has been like on a steamroll against immigrant rights, voting rights, and affirmative action for over a decade. And why is this important? Because I think the question is, to what extent does he represent Asian Americans and our like core political values, right? And he, after he lost, after representing a white woman against the University of Texas, he challenged their affirmative action program. He actually went on record and said, you know what I need? I need an Asian American plaintiff, right? Why did he say that? He had not found success with white plaintiffs. Asian Americans in this space are a game changer because they are non-white and they shield Ed Blum from charges of just trying to forward a white supremacist or, you know, uh, trying to forward uh, the status quo for white Americans. That is like gold for Ed Blum. And it's all sort of like under this, this guise of equality right like i was reading one of his quotes in like a speech he made and he was like we're not anti-immigrant like we're not anti-muslim like we just want equality for everyone so it's he actually adopts a lot of civil rights language and rhetoric to really try to forward a pretty racist agenda right to what extent are asian americans complicit when we join in those efforts. I mean, the Trump administration supported his case at Harvard. Why is that? Does Trump have Asian Americans' backs? So who are our political allies in these cases? It's just, to me, really mind-blowing that we just need to think about 
who we are and what we value. Yeah, and which members of the Asian American community would you say have like predominantly rallied behind Blum and the SSFA, SFFA and why are they falling for his rhetoric? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's such an interesting question. So I'm Chinese American and I would say that 99% of the Asian Americans who are activists in this space, anti-affirmative action activists are also Chinese American. And why is that? So if you look at Blum, Blum just created a new um, board and it's almost all Chinese American names on there, right? And why, why is that? The, it's been interesting that, you know, the, the Chinese Americans who are posing affirmative action almost never talk about being Chinese American. They always talk about representing all Asian Americans. At the same time, though, those same Chinese Americans are opposing collecting data on, um, you know, other groups. They don't want disaggregated data. They don't want us to see the vast differences between Chinese Americans' average income and, let's say, Cambodian Americans' average income. They've actually been launching campaigns at the state level against collecting data that show any differences within the Asian American community. So. That's not really a very pan-Asian kind of orientation that, you know, collecting disaggregated data has been like top of the Asian American civil rights agenda for a long time. But these same Chinese Americans who are opposing affirmative action also don't want to collect those data because they don't want Southeast Asians to benefit from affirmative action. Right. So I think what's going on is partly um social media so ethnic social media i think the ethnic social media that chinese americans use chinese american immigrants in particular forwards a lot of the misconceptions that we talked about and the other i think is maybe a kind of chinese american nationalism um and kind of a me first kind of orientation which is pretty dangerous because Chinese today, Chinese in the U.S. today are 25% of the whole Asian American community. They are the biggest group, but they're not the majority. And so I'm not sure Chinese Americans, and I speak as a Chinese American, should be representing the whole Asian American community. Absolutely. And I think data disaggregation, like that's a huge important thing to also do, right? And especially when you mention uh, particularly Southeast Asians, like in the Yale DOJ lawsuit, uh, they supposedly claim that Asian Americans and white people have only an eighth to a fourth of the likelihood of admission as African American applicants with comparable academic credentials. But then they also define Asian Americans explicitly to exclude students of Southeast Asian descent, right? So, I mean, it's very interesting because, of course, you know, white and especially Asian Americans, East Asian Americans are statistically overrepresented. They don't have a hard time getting into a place like Yale. In fact, they're more likely than almost any other group to be at Yale, given their numbers in the population. Um, the test scores they're talking about, the academic credentials they're talking about are exactly what I talked about earlier. SAT scores, which are 
you know, reflecting the fact that on average, not everyone, but your typical East Asian American is going to be more, have more highly educated parents and a higher income than anyone else in this country, right? And so those test scores are actually a way of excluding other groups. So the Department of Justice, the Trump Department of Justice has brought a, it's not exactly a case, it's a letter and a complaint to Yale saying that Asian Americans face discrimination at Yale. And they bizarrely defined the Asian American community or the the definition of Asian American to exclude those who are not East or South Asian. So excluding those who are Southeast Asian, who typically have come to the U.S. via very different pathway than either South Asians or East Asians. That pathway has been mainly as refugees and then through family reunification. And why did they do that? Because Southeast Asian Americans are going to fall, look a lot more like Black and Latinx in terms of economics, in terms of their opportunities, and probably in terms of the ways in which the challenges they face are considered in the admissions policies that consider whole people, right? And so if they had included Southeast Asians, then they couldn't make the same claims about how affirmative action has uh, been used to exclude, which it doesn't, as we can see from the numbers, East Asians. And why should the Trump Department of Justice be defining Asian Americans for the Asian American community? It makes no sense at all. It, is, it shows a kind of cynical political calculation that they had to redefine the Asian American community to exclude the Asian American groups that are most likely to be poor, who are most likely to be attending schools that are segregated and low resourced. So would you say that the Yale DOJ lawsuit was a targeted effort by the current Trump administration to eventually argue affirmative action in the Supreme Court, especially considering now we have Amy Coney Barrett on the court? So this case was brought pretty, or this complaint was brought very late in the game. So it was like within the last six months, right? And I think that maybe the Trump Department of Justice thought it could go to the Supreme Court, but it was more, I think, you know, this was brought at the exact same time that um, the Trump administration has also had also condemned uh, diversity training and teaching critical race theory. And so I think it was more of a political signal to the base that it was going to take aim at any kind of race conscious policies. And so I think it was more of a symbolic type of rally the base than let's take this to the Supreme Court. However, later, Edward Blum and SFFA, his organization did join. And now they, they are joining this complaint so that um, even if the, the Trump DOJ, you know, fades away, 
because they're because Biden will be in office. SFFA can continue this fight. Does SFFA plan to go to the Supreme Court? Absolutely. Can they win? Absolutely. And what does that mean? That means that affirmative action, race conscious admissions could be like 40 years of precedent could be overturned by a conservative Supreme Court. None of the recent appointees is a friend of affirmative action. They all have been on record saying, you know, making it clear that that's not where they stand. And what does that mean for Asian Americans? That in a moment where we see so much attention to systemic racism, Asian Americans are going to be the face of tearing down this pretty narrow policy, but very highly symbolic one, that is one way in which systemic racism is addressed. And because Bloom recruited these anonymous Asian American plaintiffs, we know that other people of color will see Asian Americans as really the face of the end of affirmative action. Yeah, that is very scary, um, considering like the actual likelihood that the Harvard case will eventually go to the Supreme Court and the conservative Supreme Court that we have now. Um, it's just heartbreaking because, you know, as Asian Americans face discrimination after COVID, who was standing up? We saw like the Congressional Black Caucus and, you know, at the systemic level, people in power. It was really like Black uh, attorneys general and the Congressional Black Caucus and the NAACP, they all stood up for Asian Americans when Trump was calling the virus, the China virus. And then what have Asian Americans, you know, turned around and done is to try to tear down affirmative action, something that barely does, probably does not benefit Asian Americans in any way, but is like, a major barrier, if it's gone, to access to education, like tear down access to education for Black and Latinx students and low-income Asian Americans as well. So would you say that there's anything that like young activists, young Asian American, young BIPOC activists, or young activists in, gen in general of all races, like is there anything that we can do right now do you feel like or is it sort of above us and and sort of looking forward as well um what do you feel like will be the role of this new generation of asian american and bipoc activists when it comes to affirmative action and addressing systemic inequality in education yeah i mean young asian americans are the hope because when you look at attitudes about affirmative action and black lives matter you can see that young Asian Americans look very different from the older generation. And, you know, I think that's critically important. The fact is, though, even among older generation Asian Americans, if they're not Chinese, they also still support affirmative action. So there's a lot of support for affirmative action, even among older Asian Americans. I think Chinese are the one exception. But within the Chinese population, you also see younger Asian American, younger Chinese much more supportive of racial justice, of affirmative action. Is there anything to do? No, it's not above people's heads because in the Harvard case, young Asian Americans 
testified in support of affirmative action in that case. They were represented by the Legal Defense Fund. I think it was absolutely critical that Asian American young people join that coalition of other uh, BIPOC students who were um, testifying in support of race conscious admissions because there has to be a counter narrative. And when the media, you know, I think young Asian Americans have been at the forefront of media stories saying we support affirmative action, we support race conscious admissions. We understand that this benefits Asian Americans because, I mean, there's research that shows that a more diverse learning environment does benefit Asian Americans. They get more out of their colleges and universities, right? And so I think that, you know, at the, in the Yale case, having Asian American students reinforce the idea that, you know, at the case that the complaint by SFFA is wrong, that they support race conscious admissions at Yale is like super powerful. So I would say there's, you know, op-eds and letters and getting it right. Like, I think it's important for Asian American students and young people to understand, like, you're not doing it in spite of a quota. There is no quota. You're not doing it even though there are higher standards for Asian Americans. There are not higher standards for Asian Americans to get in, right? And so I think speaking out and making it clear to other Asian Americans that, you know, this is an issue we all benefit from. This is a policy we all benefit from. And making it really clear to other BIPOC students, like, we're with you on this because it's the right thing to do, that's not a hard lift for Asian American students or young people. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I know it can feel pretty pessimistic at times, but I don't think that means we stop fighting in the education space and also in other spaces. And as you just mentioned, Professor Wong, like there, there are conversations we can have and there are resources we can read and there are steps we can take uh, now and in the future too. And once again, I will put together a resource document and include um, articles, videos, papers that I've come across, and also those that Professor Wong mentioned today in the episode, and include them all in the homecoming link tree and the episode description and our social media too. Uh, but Professor Wong, thank you so much for lending your time and knowledge today. Uh, I certainly learned a lot. I very much feel enlightened right now. Like you definitely cleared a lot up for me because like even a couple of days ago, even right before this episode, there were just a lot of thoughts in my head. I, I didn't really like I just felt super overwhelmed with all the resources and knowledge that was out there. But you definitely made what was complex a lot simpler for me. So thank you. And I'm sure that's the that's the case for other listeners out there, too. But if anyone who is listening has any questions for you or wants to follow up with anything you mentioned in the episode today or wants to reach out to you about your research, 
Um, where can they find you? Where can they reach you? So my um, email is janellew at umd.edu. And you can also find me at Twitter at Prof Janelle Wong. So thank you so much, Angelina, for having me on here and for the work that you're doing and also for the conversation next week. That's exactly what I'm talking about, having those conversations and, um, about these issues and really just, you know, getting beyond these kind of misconceptions is so critical. Perfect. Thank you so much, Professor, again. And to all the listeners out there, thank you for tuning in to this very first episode of season two. We did it. I hope you enjoyed the episode and learned a lot once again. Um, but please, please, please make sure you follow our social media at Homecoming Pod. Subscribe to Homecoming. Give us those five stars on iTunes so other people can find it and share this episode. Next week, I will be back with part two of the affirmative action series in which some student leaders and I will debrief and have a conversation about affirmative action and education equity and the kinds of conversations that we are having uh, about these topics in our own spaces. So thank you all again. It means the world to have you listening and supporting the podcast. And I will see you all next Saturday. 